0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian here, and I'm with Dan, as I always am. Hey, Brian. How's it going? Doing okay, Dan. How
1: are you? Good. We're recording this on the 23rd of September, which is the second day of fall, and for once, nature actually got the message. It's like, I stepped out today. I was like, whoa, it's it's windy and chilly and there's leaves on the ground. I mean, there's only a couple leaves on the ground, but it still does
0: feel like fall
1: is right around the corner, let's say.
0: Yep. I got to take a step outside and check it out. It's coming. More leaves on the ground soon. Hashtag PSL, hashtag sweater weather. <laughs> I've got my Oktoberfest beer I'm sipping on. And as is standard procedure here on the show, we have watched a movie that we're going to talk about. I've been waiting to share this one for a while because it is called Fantastic Planet or La Planète Sauvage. It's a French, Czech, surrealist animated collaboration from 1973 and is just as weird as that might suggest. (laughs) I want to tell you right off the bat that I don't speak French, and I definitely don't speak Czech. So did you watch the dub, then? Yes. This is a case where I did watch the dub. I think in our anime of Green Gables discussion, we might have touched on whether we tend to watch the dubs or the subs. And with Japanese stuff, at least, usually I go for the subs. I like to try to pick up some of the language. But... With this movie, which this was probably like my sixth time watching it, I used the dub because that's how I first experienced it. And where I first experienced it was a broadcast on PBS. It was late on a Friday night, and I was nine years old. Wow. Which I think is a little young for exposure to this
1: movie. Also, old enough to know that it's really weird and, like, inappropriate. Good point. Boundary pushing.
0: Excellent point. This filled a weird niche in my prepubescent experience. (laughs) But, yeah, it comes to us from the French animator René Laloux and the writer Roland Topor, who I think, Dan, you said he was also involved with the production design.
1: Yes. Um, I believe that he was the, uh, in charge of the production design. And I, I think that's noteworthy because he was a big figure in the surrealist movement in Europe. And in particular, he worked quite a bit with, I think it's pronounced Jodorowsky. I, I don't actually know how it's pronounced, but he's a cult filmmaker who made similarly surreal works, although I think all of his were live action but I've seen his movies listed among the weirdest ever. What's the name of his really famous one?
0: Is it The Holy
1: Mountain? Yes, that's the one.
0: Yeah. Right. So I'm part of a Facebook group called Incredibly Strange Films. I've name dropped it here a couple times. And things that are always popping up there, just like every other day, you got Jan Spankmare with stuff like Alice, you've got Jadiroski with. Holy Mountain, and wouldn't you know it, Fantastic Planet. Like, every single week, Fantastic <laughs> Planet's on there, and it deserves its slot, because this is a weird one.
1: Yeah, no question. I actually listened to the French audio. So, I I think my experience watching it would have been a little different if, if it had been in English. I mean, that kind of goes without saying, but hearing a foreign language you don't know speak the w- strange words and being the sonic texture for the weird images, I would imagine made it feel even more alien than it would have if I had just watched it in English with the dub. And I, I don't know if that's actually a net positive or net negative, but we can talk a little bit through th- through that as we go.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It's a reversal of how we watched Anne of Green Gables. That's right.
1: With The turntables or whatever Michael <laughs> Scott says. Oh, well, how the turntables.
0: But I'm also glad I watched the English dub this time because the narrator of the film in the English dub is Barry Bostwick. Who's Barry Bostwick? Who is Barry Bostwick? Uh, He of Teen Beach Movie stardom. (laughs) Yeah, that's what people know him
1: from. Being the guy who looks like he smelled a fart in the first 15 minutes of Teen Beach Movie. That's what I know him from, though.
0: The old grandpa who's not Frankie Avalon. Another prominent star in this one is Hal Smith, who was probably best known for playing town drunk Otis on The Andy Griffith Show, Mm. but he also voiced Owl in the original Winnie the Pooh Disney shorts. I love
1: when you get uh, actors who you know their voices and you see them live action. It can be disorienting. The The biggest one for me is always in 12 Angry Men. The guy who voices Piglet from the Winnie the Pooh movies and shorts by Disney is one of the 12 Angry Men.
0: Oh, yeah. That's right. He was one of those character actors who would pop up in place to place. Yeah. Definitely with a distinctive voice. There's several of those from that era, like the guy who played Pooh, Sterling Holloway, is the same thing. Mm. And... Uh, Who's the other one I'm thinking of? Oh, uh, Andy Devine, Friar Tuck from the 70s Robin Hood. Okay. This is another one that he's just got a crazy voice to see it coming out of a human. <laughs> one, one tangential
1: thought on voice performances and then we can proceed. I watched the 2022 Netflix-released Marmaduke animated film and it is real bad. but Pete Davidson is the lead voice actor and he gives what might be the single worst vocal performance I've ever heard in an animated movie. So what makes it so bad? It's just super duper flat and like disinterested and just doesn't sound like someone you want to root for, uh, despite (laughs) being the ostensible hero of the story. But it also isn't like so flat that it like turns the corner into, like, an artistic choice. It just sounds kind of bland, so... I I was, uh, like, also looking for things to hate because it's just not good, so... Anyways.
0: (laughs) We're going to have to toss on a Walmart shelf-filler animated films that who knows what country they're even made in, but they give celebrities a bit of money to voice the characters probably sitting... In their office in one afternoon, and then you wind up with these ridiculous, quote unquote, star studded casts. Right. Where 98% of the budget
1: went towards getting J.K. Simmons to record, you know, 50 lines for the evil villain dog in Marmaduke, a Fabio style dog named like King or so. I forget what it even is. But, anyways,
0: enough about Marmaduke. <laughs> Well, we could always bring that back for J.K. Simmons month then. That's true. And before we depart from vocal performance discussion entirely, it's always struck me, I wonder if this was a decision on part of the director or what, but the English voice cast, they just talk like as creepy as possible. Well, there's aliens in this movie. I'll say that right out the bat. And the way that the alien characters talk is like very monotone. So it's like, Careful, Tiva. You might hurt him. And it's always just made my hair stand on end. It's really creepy. Man, I'm not saying that it's any
1: less creepy in the French, but because I'm not listening to it specifically to get the content from it, I'm I'm more so reading the words. I definitely didn't get quite that level of the
0: willies listening to him talk. Probably looking at some of this stuff. You got some willies. Oh, yes. Willies all around. That could be an episode title. (laughs) All right. So a couple more things about the, the context of this film. So it is an animated film. I don't think we've said yet. This is our theme month where we are watching older animated features from studios other than Disney. All of mine so far have been fantasy films from the 70s. And of course, today will be no different. And a month. This is the last week, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Wrapping things up. It's kind of a backdoor pilot to spooky month. Yeah, the art style of this one is done in cutout animation. So in a way, it's similar to Prince Ahmed, but it's in color. So what it really reminds me of is the animated sequences from Monty Python's Flying Circus. Like, we we got a little of it in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, like the cave monster that comes out. Yeah, I was reading
1: up a little bit on it as I pulled it up. I was scrolling on my phone and just reading a little bit of background. And they said it was uh, hot at the time in part because Terry Gilliam, Monty Python, was experimenting with it. And as soon as they said that, I was like, oh, yeah, this is exactly what we see during those Monty Python and the Holy Grail sequences. I haven't seen... The show, but it's got like a obviously a flat look and then also somewhat stilted motion and just also very pencil drawn. I thought it
0: looked right. And the coloring is interesting. They have like a distinct shading. They look like paper dolls or people cut out of greeting cards or something. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's something very soulless and otherworldly about it because the animation is very limited and the eyes don't really react to anything. It's basically only the mouths and the joints that move. Other than that, it's like a p- printed piece of paper moving around. Right. A shout out to South Park, I guess, also. That uses cutout animation. Or a simulacrum thereof. Like in the early seasons, or maybe just the pilot, they really made it out of like cutout felt, but then subsequently they digitized it.
1: It's kind of interesting what effect that has on... I don't know. It's just the whole time... You're not really immersed in the heads of the characters. At least I felt that way, because you're not really, like, seeing them doing normal human reactions to things for exactly what you were saying about the faces. And that just makes the whole thing feel more surreal and alien, I think.
0: Definitely. As I mentioned, I first experienced this on a PBS broadcast. I talked a little about this when we did our Night of the Living Dead and Return of the Living Dead episode. That on Friday nights at, like, 9 o'clock, they would show an episode of the old stand-up comedian show starring Red Skelton. And then at 9.30, they would play some old horror or sci-fi movie. And it was very influential on me. I watched it from, like, when I was 7 to at some point when I was 9. Tune in, like, every week and watch these. And... Return of the Living Dead is what stopped it because it scared me a lot. Um, this one did not scare me at the time, but it stuck with me. It was very weird and I didn't forget it. But when I went back years later trying to find out more about it, I couldn't find anything. This was in, you know, the somewhat early days of me using the internet and I just wasn't coming across anything because the title. Is similar to other bigger films. Fantastic Voyage is a movie. It's the one where the people shrink down and travel around inside somebody's body, Magic School Bus style. And Forbidden Planet is a movie. It stars one of cinema's most famous robots, Robbie the Robot, and is an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Both of those much more prominent and widely referenced than Fantastic Planet. And so this one was kind of like off the radar for me. It was hiding hiding under those other films. And I finally was able to track it down again when I was like 15 in high school, back in the early YouTube days. And it was up there and I rewatched it. It just creeped me out way more when I was 15 than when I was nine. Huh,
1: yeah. I I do want to consider for a moment what you just said about those other movies being bigger because um, I've heard this referenced many times and so there was a DVD release in 2006 following a restoration and there it was added to the Criterion collection in 2016. And uh, I th- think for whatever reason it's acclaim and repute and widespread you know audience has grown. I just looked it up to to kind of verify that, because the the ones that you mentioned, which were Fantastic Voyage and Forbidden Planet, I definitely feel like I've seen reference less than this one. And sure enough, at least on Letterboxd, which is not necessarily representative of popular culture as a whole, but um, Fantastic Planet has 10 times the number of logged views as Fantastic Voyage and about four times as many as Forbidden Planet. And in fact... Fantastic Planet, uh, the one we're watching today, is the second most logged film from
0: 1973. That's wild. Is What's number one? The Exorcist. Okay.
1: But it's like ahead of Mean Streets and Don't Look Now and American Graffiti and Robin Hood
0: and The Sting. But I think you're right that this is the kind of movie that film people care about. And uh, yeah, it makes sense that this one's in the Criterion Collection. It's really weird. <laughs> That's going to get said many times... We are going to finally start talking about the specifics of why it's weird, but I just haven't seen another movie that's like this. We mentioned that the art looks similar to the Monty Python sequences, but it's like mixed with images that you might see in a medieval bestiary or like a codex of botany, studies of plants, flora and fauna stuff and then, like, crossed with Salvador Dali or something.
1: Yeah, and some of the close-ups, I think this is kind of what you're going for, too, is, like, I don't know if Renaissance, I'm not strong enough in my art history to say exactly what era this portraiture looked like, but it definitely looks like something you would see, like, hanging in a museum or in an art history textbook, like the classic kind of profile portrait.
0: Right, like, it's from another era. So, Dan, I think... We need to actually talk about the things that transpire in this film narrative. If you say, we must. Yes, indeed. All right. This is a science fiction film, and it takes place in the future. Years after this race of giant blue humanoid aliens came across an apocalyptic Earth, and they scooped up the people who were left there and kept them as pets. So just let that sink in. You got giant blue aliens, no eyelids, big bulging red eyes, and they're going to be with us for this whole movie. And they keep humans as pets. And they have like fishy, fin-shaped
1: ears. They also struck me a little bit as like when we were watching They Live, because their eyes are like perfect circles, and it kind of looks like their forehead skin has been like pulled way up. Like, it's like their skin is stretched across their face to some extent. Right. It's like a girl with a too tight ponytail. It, it made me think a little bit of like a, a mummified face where like the skin is kind of pulling up against the bones. Uh, also like the aliens and they live, which is where I was going with that a minute ago.
0: Right. Something really scary about their eyes, just never blinking, mm-hmm. not even having the capacity to blink because no lids. And these giants are known as drogs. They mention that they live a super long time compared to humans. And the people are called Omes, the earthling human characters. They're tiny pets. And this is a play on the French word for man, which is home, or it might be pronounced om, uh, H-O-M-M-E, but in the movie, it's just O-M. And this story is an adaptation of a novel called Omes en Serie which, from my understanding, follows the same story, so it's also probably pretty strange. But because humans live a shorter time span, that means that they reproduce much more quickly than the drogs, and they are regarded by some of the drogs as vermin, the way we might think of bugs or rats. So it's like having a pet hamster or something, but they've got little humans. And I love the way
1: that this is introduced in the story, which I think you're probably about to talk about. Do you want to jump into that? Oh, you can talk a little bit about it if you wanted to share like the very first visual of the film. Yeah, so it starts a very dreamlike, almost makes me think of like a Sisyphus, like some mythological story of this woman who's draped in caveman style robes carrying a baby around this just really freaky world where there's like just the grass is blue and there are these rocks that look like giant land coral and these hands keep reaching down and like these scales and blades keep surrounding her and she's holding her baby and trying to like avoid this dark force from above that that like a god keeps reaching down and grabbing for her And eventually the hand like pulls her up and we don't get to see it in vivid detail, but like essentially gets poked and squeezed and dropped and prodded to death. And then the baby gets picked up by this. What we now see is one of those aliens. Just a very alarming way to uh, get to know the world and the premise.
0: Yeah, it sticks with you. So this baby that's just been... Orphaned, gets adopted by a drog girl who's like not quite a princess. She's like the daughter of the mayor, and her name is Tiva. Careful, Tiva. And so she adopts the baby and starts raising him, and she names him Terre, which is a play on the French word for Earth, which is Terre, like Mediterranean. In Wizards, is. I remember there's the president. Is the
1: female protagonist of that, is she uh, the daughter of the president? I can't remember.
0: She is, you're right. More connective threads between your Animants Picks. <laughs> Consistency. That's the name of the game. I could have gotten way more narrow with my requirements for the month, but I'm glad we had some variety. <laughs> so the way drug children are educated... For school or in place of school as they sit in their rooms with headphones on and they have these audio recordings of lessons played directly into their brains. It's like a podcast. So it, when you're driving around in your car listening to us talk, think about like a psychedelic brain dump download that's teaching you about film history.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> also, I think worth mentioning, and I think This will also become apparent as we get more into this story. This is at least somewhat, in fact, I would say more than somewhat, uh, allegorical and satirical story. I think there's a lot of different ways you can read it. And I want to share a couple of my theories, but definitely like some satire and condescending satire on like the way that these drugs just detachedly experience the world by having stuff blasted into their ears Ooh,
0: I like that. I haven't thought about that too much, but I do think one theme is like not being invested in the raising of your children because they just go and sit in their room and they receive everything digitally, secondhand, and it seems like the parents are very detached. But maybe because Tear has this like radio collar thing on, he's able to absorb the drog lessons because Tifa holds him in her lap, like patting him on the head and the audio like goes through her body into his brain. And so he's getting smart. He's getting educated. And one thing he can do is read drog language. So he's quickly becoming like the most educated ohm. One of my takes that I think holds
1: up a little better in the opening half than the second half on this movie is that it kind of had some coming of age parallels in it rather than like lots of sexual imagery. Although there's like definitely some of that it's like more translated as absurdism, but the way that uh, our main character tear is like learning about the world, like through observing these tall giant creatures that behave in a slightly different sphere, not slightly different, very different sphere of, uh, Activity and agencies made me think a little bit of like kids watching adults and then like, I don't know, that sort of terrifying period, which is why I think nine was a very interesting age to watch it, where like you start to be a little bit more aware of the adult world, but it still doesn't make sense to you. I kind of got that sensation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm agreeing with everything that you say. It is very much about coming of age because when drug children reach a certain point in their development a certain age. They begin to undergo a procedure called meditation. They sit by this, like, projector thing that's in the middle of every house, and they kneel and meditate, but it involves their, like, spirit going into a technicolor bubble, and then the bubble goes up the chimney out of the house and flies around in the sky. While their like husk is sitting there down in the house. And once the like drog teenagers start doing this meditation, that's their biggest concern. That's what they most like to do, and they stop paying attention to other things. Like their pets. So now Ter is a neglected pet ohm, and he's got all this extra knowledge in his head, so he decides to strike out on his own. He steals the Earbuds, and he runs off into the wilderness. It's a very different
1: when somebody loved me type moment (laughs) from Toy Story 2.
0: Yeah, very different, I would say. Man, this is a complete departure. Maybe not the time to even bring it up, but I'm glad that Toy Story 4 kind of dipped its toes in the only possible future i see for the toy story franchise which is rebel toys developing their own communities apart from humans oh i thought where you were going with that is pushing the outer
1: bounds of what is exactly a toy and what is what is life like for objects outside of toyhood the way it did with forky
0: that was very interesting, too. I like that. But no, I, I like what you're saying. But yeah, I, I think if there is a second Toy Story trilogy, if we get 4, 5, and 6, it's really got to be like a Rise of the Planet of the Apes thing.
1: Oh, man. That's pretty much the only thing that would get me excited about Toy Story 5 and 6. Not that I disliked 4, but
0: yeah. Okay, but back on track, as much as this movie has a track. Actually, the narrative is fairly simple, point A to B to C. But we see some weird shit along the way. And so now, Terra is out in the wilderness, living the life of a savage ome, as they say in the English dub. The title, Fantastic Planet, the English translation, Uh, the original French is La Planète Sauvage, which is more like the wild planet or the savage planet. And I'm not exactly sure why they picked Fantastic. I think Savage Planet sounds awesome. I think there should be a band called Savage Planet. Like Savage Garden? Yeah. Very different band, though. <laughs> I'd be concerned to see a band that was anything like this movie.
1: <laughs> I I kind of feel like this m- movie is the type of thing that some band would, like some metal band or prog band would latch onto as their guiding aesthetic. There's a lot of bands out there that like some really weird shit as their, their inspiration.
0: I've heard that the soundtrack has been sampled by multiple groups, which makes some sense. It's extremely psychedelic. We'll talk a little more about the music soon. But, right, we have Tear out in the wilderness, starting to survive. He meets up with a colony of these savage Ohms, and because he's so smart, is able to establish a place of prominence for himself within the community. And this is the bulk of the plot, is him, like coming to be a leader of the Wild Ohms. But so much of what this movie is, is not connected to the plot per se. It's an extremely visual experience. And so it's almost a disservice to be discussing it in an all audio medium. Because what are some of the things that we see, Dan? Yeah, so
1: we, we follow this colony of, of people. And they kind of resemble like what I would imagine a like very early cradle of life type civilization to look like like the stereotypical stone age almost, but they just see so much stuff. I I mean, I don't even know where to necessarily get started, but something about the plants, like the first of all, all the plants are giant relative to the creatures. So they're like wandering the wilderness and it's like, um, honey, I shrunk the kids where everything seems giant in comparison to them and it's not just that it's huge but that it's so weird it's like a lot of it is very uh, i don't made me think of human organs and gross globs and i don't know you definitely get some imagery that's like phallic almost like weird long tube things that drip weird liquids and stuff But also just it's just strange and it it never it never ceases to be different from the last thing. Like I remember there's some time around the middle of the film. They're like walking across the landscape. I forget exactly why they're doing it. And they're on this weird like it's like a cracked desert floor, but it's different from that because I just think of like a, a, a cracked sandy ground. Wouldn't really have any continuity to it. It's like a path that like folds in over itself. And I was thinking, man, that looks a little bit like intestines. And then like they start rising up as if they're like a worm in Dune or something like that. It's just so bizarre. Like you can't even really describe it without seeing it.
0: I remember that part. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, the senses rebel. Just looking at and listening to these creatures and plants, it really is like a whole other alien world in a way I haven't really seen in another movie. It's like photorealistic Dr. Seuss or something. That's an interesting way of putting it, yeah. It's, it's just very anatomical. It's like very scientifically drawn and yet defies our understanding of physics and biology and anything in our earthly experience. Right. I I think anatomic is a good word. Clinical
1: was a word I had in mind too. It's like, one thing is it's not is atmospherically scary at all. It doesn't really like put you in the emotional perspective of the characters. The way that it just kind of shows it rather than like really allowing the world to react to it with like any sense of wonder, it's just kind of there just makes it so alien and makes what probably could have been very scary, less so at least, or unless you find the detachment itself very scary off putting.
0: Yeah. Like I said, I saw this as a pretty young kid and it didn't scare me at that time. Just weirded me out. And then when I watched it at 15, it really gave me the creeps. So your experience could vary. I'm going to file this under science fiction in our spreadsheet. It's definitely not horror, but it's spooky. I think it's a good first entry for our spooky season consideration. A ramp up, yeah. Yeah. And so, a couple specific visuals that I want to comment on. And just bear in mind that, like, every five seconds of this movie, there's some weird creature. And, like, they all operate by. A set of rules so like it could really be a creature just something different than we've seen ever before like oh man there's this egg that hatches and a little baby comes out of the egg that's it's like a little baby bird thing and then this larger animal walks up that you think is the mother and it starts licking the little baby but then it eats it it eats the baby this is a predator and the timing of this is just really made to upend your expectations. It's like comic timing, but disturbing timing. Yeah, unsettling. Yeah. Like, oh! Um, and then the one that really gets me, there's like a sentient cloud with little bat wings, and it lives in a big birdcage, and it has a tentacle for a nose. And outside the cage, there are flying fish flying through the air. And this cloud creature extends the tentacle, grabs the flying fish, shakes it, and hurls it to the ground. The camera pulls out, and we see that there's this mounting pile of broken bodies of these flying fish. And the cloud creature just cackles sadistically. It's like, (laughs) ha.
1: so weird you couldn't make up what this type of stuff that brian's talking about
0: and yet someone did and 50 years later we were having to deal with it (laughs) still
1: processing it yeah
0: but back to the plot Terra's colony they live in this big tree in a abandoned park and their group is led by a dude who is called Mighty One in the English dub. I really like Mighty One's look. I want to cosplay as Mighty One. He's the dude who's got like a leaf or something on his head. He's got a droopy mustache and on his head he has like this little squid creature. Okay. It's got like little legs. Uh, but his facial hair looks like asterix or obelix or something like a ancient gall. Also, we haven't said it yet. There's a lot of toplessness in this movie. Any female character regardless of the age, the breasts are out. Yeah. This
1: is what contributes to the sense, at least for me, that it's like a primitive society. It's like they're they're just wearing loincloths or like toga-style sheets strapped around themselves with not much care about what's dangling out and when.
0: Right, but even the drogs, though, they have, like, these skin-tight bodysuits with two little holes cut for each boobie. That's right, yeah. Kind of, to me,
1: plays up the coming-of-age sexual awakening undertones of the story.
0: Yes. Tear climbs to a rank of authority in this clan because he is able to do things like read drug warnings signs posted around and so he can use that to protect the tribe from danger he also fights off various rivals within the tribe who are jealous of him like there's a wizard or something that doubts him and i don't know it's an interesting dynamic it's kind of like when we watch they live and we've got the people who are fighting each other rather than trying to rise up against the totalitarian threat
1: Yeah, definitely some of that. They look identical to us. They dress the same way even, but they're like whacking each other with weapons and raiding each other and not trusting each other.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. One of his like rivals who badmouths him in this community, they like challenge each other to a duel and Mighty One says, bring the animals of combat! (laughs) And then in the next scene, they have these things strapped to their chests, which is like the mouth from the Sarlacc in the special edition of Return of the Jedi. Just like this big snapping Venus flytrap mouth that's tied with ropes around their chest. And they have their hands tied behind their backs. So the only way they can fight each other is by making these mouths bite the other dude or the other creature. And... A great way to settle conflict, I think. <laughs> bring I wish if you took somebody to HR, they could say, bring the animals of combat! <laughs> uh, but eventually, Ter is able to unite these different bands of the savage ohms in the park because he reads a sign that there's going to be a deomization. Basically, drug exterminators are going to go through the park and they have all these surreal gadgets for... Killing the wild ohms.
1: Another, I had read this before I even watched it, and definitely see it in the second half when we get to the deomization. Is that at least one way to read the allegorical context of the story is that it's basically about how we shouldn't mistreat animals or how like pro animal rights, pro environmentalism, because it, it is really disturbing, just like viscerally. Makes you squirm when, first of all, sometimes when the these what are they called drugs when they have the humans as like pets and so they get like sometimes they're on leashes sometimes they're like cruelly treated. Like I remember a scene where two two women are like fighting each other and it's like framed like a like a cockfight or something, but. They've tied, the drugs have tied the women's hair together. So it's just this like very off-putting dehumanization aspect. And this is amplified even more anytime the drugs are trying to exterminate. Just some really creepy stuff with it.
0: Right. And like the exterminators even have like, hunting dog humans on leashes that have little gas masks on that are helping them find the packs of the wild humans. Right. It made me think of like hunting dogs when you go duck hunting or something. Right. Very disturbing. And there's like a sliding scale of how wild various humans are. Like there's one who they've trained to sing, like a singing bird or something. Really weird. But this band of Ohms, a fair bit of them are able to get out of this deomization because of Terry's leadership, and they make it to the edge of this park, where they run into a drog who's like, ooh, bugs, and he starts stamping on Ohms. But for the first time they all work together as like a ohm swarm, and they're able to kill a drog. They bring him down with like ropes and hooks like Gulliver's Travels. I was thinking of Gulliver's Travels too, yeah. Uh, But Mighty One gets squished in this fight, and so now Terror is the leader. He comes into his own as Head Ohm. Eventually this pack that he's leading makes it to what they call an abandoned rocket depot. So it's a place that the Drogs make spaceships. So... Tare and his group, by this point, he's got a human girlfriend and he's, you know, he's the the tribe leader. And he has them all making rocket components. So by the end, they've got this serviceable drog scale spaceship and they use it to take off to the moon of the planet, which everybody calls La Planète Sauvage in the dub it's the fantastic planet. So not really even a planet, it's a moon of a planet. But that's where they go in this rocket. And before we hit the conclusion on this,
1: I do want to talk about one thing that happens just before they take off. So you talked about the time where they get kind of stomped on, but to me like the the most the creepiest and most frightening moment for the humans is Like after that, they decide, oh, we got to go out. We got to kill them all because now we know they're a threat to us. It's like if you found a nest of wasps in your backyard and it stung you. It's like you got to go get rid of it. And the devices they have to take them out are just really creepy. The, The one that got me the most is they have this thing that looks like a flashlight. And at first I thought they were just trying to find them. But whenever a human gets hit by this flashlight. It just like falls down dead instantly, like no obvious damage to him that just kills them. And so you have these drogs coming to the humans with these flashlight things running away in swarms and this light hits them and just like mows them down. They just like collapse down. So there's like a, a line of corpses that are like small insect sized when we get that perspective. But you know, they're humans and... That was a peak Willy's moment for me.
0: Right. All of these methods of, of killing are very disturbing. And yeah, that's a big one. A lot of the devices use poison gas. So it's like you would imagine World War One to be like so horrible that they didn't even use it in World War Two.
1: I was also wondering if there was some Vietnam stuff built into that, like napalm or whatever. Oh, I can see that.
0: But yeah, there's like a thing... That, you know, the toy that you give a kid where it's got two wheels and like a plastic dome with little balls inside it. And as you roll it along the ground, it uh, has got a little, like a diaphragm that pops the balls up and down all around in the plastic dome. So it's making like a popcorn sound. They have a thing that's like that, except it sprays out these little pellets that gas humans. So weird. Yeah. But now Terror and his dudes are on the moon of the planet. And what they find, I was definitely not prepared for. (laughs) Because with all of this other weird, otherworldly, nonsensical, surreal bullshit, there's a twist ending. How could you have a twist ending when already we're, like, defying all the rules of earthly logic? But what's on the moon is this big valley that's full of giant statues like... Greco-Roman, Classical-era artful nudes with no heads on these statues. And we learn the function of drog meditation. Because when the drogs astrally project and put their souls into these colorful bubbles, the bubbles fly up to the moon and they land on the necks of these statues And then the statues fuck. (laughs) Yeah. That is the climax of this film, is all of these statues, which are probably enormous even compared to drogs, because the drog body bubble just makes up the head, are dancing around and getting it on. On the moon. Pretty much. And
1: we don't actually see the, the intercourse, if you will, but like... They're definitely rhythmically moving and the camera or such as it is, the the art is like calling attention to these sensuously curved bodies rubbing up against each other and and swirling and dancing. Yeah.
0: Yes. Which again are naked. They're all naked. And the phrase in the English dub is nuptial rites. Interesting. Yeah. And so what do the humans do? But they start destroying these statues with laser guns and suddenly all the drogs down on the planet get cosmic blue balls. (laughs) (laughs) They're like instantly jerked out of their VR statue coitus. And, you know, their big red eyes are like just echoing around in their heads, all their pupils like darting around. It's they weren't expecting this. And... Immediately, it's like an existential threat because now they can't reproduce on the moon anymore. Who knows if they have any other method, but this is a big problem. And so then the very next thing is the drog government is suing for peace. They're saying, please don't smash our sex statues anymore.
1: <laughs> Been there, yeah. And yeah.
0: so then the drugs get freed. It's like the pharaoh in Exodus.
1: And... They also say that they're going to make an artificial planet for the humans to live on. So it'll be like a peaceful dichotomy. You'll have the sex statue moon, and then you'll have the humans living on the other moon.
0: Yep. Yeah, they do say that. And then this new moon gets named after Earth. It gets called
1: Tear. It's like it's almost like a, a Earth origin story here.
0: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. It it reminded me of in one of the Hitchhiker's Guide sequels. Maybe it's even in the first one, but they go to a planet that's like a factory for building other planets and they make a copy of the Earth.
1: Oh, man. Or I was also thinking uh, Planet of the Apes. How It's not exactly the same because they're... Well, I think everybody knows the twist ending to Planet of the Apes. I will say it now, so if you don't want to know it, jump ahead... 30 seconds to not get spoiled on a 50-year-old movie. But the Planet of the Apes turns out to actually be Earth. And it's like a big thing at the end, like, oh, wow, we're, we're here at Earth. I haven't actually seen it, but I know that's what it is, in part because of the Simpsons parody.
0: Oh, man, you've never seen Planet of the Apes? No, I haven't. We might have to watch that one, although I will admit that knowing the ending may rob it of some of its potency. But, you know, they made like five sequels and then a remake and then another remake and a trilogy off of that, so... There's plenty to explore if we want to do Ape Month or Ape Semester.
1: I always assumed it was kind of like dumb and trashy. I don't know, maybe just because from the cheap looking masks I'd seen or maybe old fashioned looking masks, I guess. But I I read a series of reviews of them that made them sound uh, more cerebral than I would have expected and political. I would definitely watch them at some point.
0: And you know what? Roddy McDowell plays one of the main apes in Planet of the Apes. He was also Sam in the Rankin-Bass Return of the King we watched not too long ago. It all comes circling back. It's all connected. But in a little epilogue thing, after we learn that, yes, the drogs have made peace with the humans and they've made this little satellite for them to live on, in the very final scene, we see a drog child who's got a new pet. And it's like this little lizard creature. But basically, it's the idea that this could all happen again. It could all start again from the beginning, that now this little buddy, this pet creature, could start getting smart and getting ideas and rising up. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't even uh, think about that, but you're right. And that's Fantastic Planet from 1973. So, Dan, before we go any further, just do you have any more feelings, any more thoughts just coming fresh off this your first time.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a bewildering experience and it's it verges into too much bizarre imagery like your brain can't even like like it just starts to become background noise almost. It's like oh weird thing this shot oh hey look another weird thing but I I did like that the story was very easy to follow that I think provided a, a solid framework for the the absurdity, the the surrealism. And I also was thinking a lot about the influences. I haven't seen Metropolis, so I can only imagine the second half where they're like, they've inhabited a, a spaceship base, has at least some of that. But what I was thinking of is going all the way back to A Journey to the Moon, uh, George Melies. There's even like, they kind of sit in a line, like there's a, there's a shot of the science council or something. And Journey to the Moon or Trip to the Moon or whatever the 1902 short is called by George Méliès, And just like this, again, a, a weird planet where they're walking around and things just look kind of off. Uh, I was getting some Méliès vibes, particularly the second half. And I'm glad you said Dr. Seuss earlier, because I think there is shared DNA between this and Dr. Seuss. Uh, made me think at moments just a little bit of The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T., It's not the same vibe, but it has some of the same, just strange set design. Even though here the sets are, of course, drawings. But,
0: yeah. I like that. It is like 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, but with more of a sense that one of the weird things lurking around any corner could eat you at any moment. (laughs) Right. There's just a little more dread in this one. Yeah. And I also wondered... If
1: there was something to this being also, as well as an animal rights type parable, like also potentially a racism parable, too. Like some of the stuff about how they kind of learn each other's culture. And I think it was at least playing with people's awareness of those ongoing themes of like, how do we get people of different backgrounds who might not necessarily want to work together or at least like have some element of feeling alien to the other. Something like that. How do we get those to coexist? Although I I think it kind of falls apart if you start to deconstruct it that way. Yeah. Maybe more just like, hey, it kind of sucks if you're the one being oppressed, I guess. (laughs) Good tagline.
0: It's like Disney zombies if Zed was 200 feet tall.
1: (laughs) That one, surprisingly... Zombies did not end with headless sex statues.
0: Yeah, we need drugs in Zombies Four. Oh man,
1: that's the crossover we need. You just nailed it. Zombies Four, the drugs.
0: <laughs> D hyphen R hyphen A hyphen A hyphen G. That's what the rival, the rival university is.
1: <laughs> it's a bunch of drugs.
0: Man, this is just getting too weird in my head. I. We got to move on. (laughs) But yeah, what it boils down to is this was one of the shortlist movies for me when I considered what the goods would be when it was just going to be like a series of written articles, because I wanted to write about movies that weren't necessarily my favorite movies, but that I wanted people to see and know about and that were essentially on my mind often. And this one, like, I think of Fantastic Planet probably more than just about any other single film.
1: What What's the most common connection you make?
0: I think it's the eyes, the, the Draug eyes, just those big red lidless eyes mm. kind of haunt my dreams. There is like a short list of very specific monsters that like, if you just name drop them, not everybody is even going to know what those are. For me, it's Morlocks from The Time Machine, specifically the Wishbone episode of The Time Machine. And it's Skeksis from Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal, and it's Drogs. (laughs) I don't want to run into any of those in a dark alley. Like, if it comes after me from Stephen King, it's probably going to take one of those forms.
1: Very nice.
0: Do you have anything like that? Oh, man. I would have to think about that. I
1: have not watched as as many monster-based uh media as you have. It's a good question. I, I would say that maybe I've spent more time thinking about the nature of a goofy as a, as a dog-based human and especially when you bring Pluto into the equation and just like ruminating on the existential basis of of what is a goofy? <laughs>
0: Oh my god, I am gonna tell my brother about this. I don't know if he'll listen to the whole episode, but he's gonna find that hilarious. My brother, who is a Disney employee now, by the way, um, he likes to talk about what he calls Goofy kin, (laughs) which is the species that Goofy is, these bipedal dogmen. That's really funny. That's a great way to come to the close or very nearly of our episode here today. And if we were going to talk about
1: animated movies, I may as well get a goofy movie pitch in there.
0: Right. Do you have any way that you could tie that thing you do into this one? <laughs> I,
1: I don't think you could. No. I think w- there is a shot early in that thing you do where Lenny is talking about something that's on the TV. And he said, my mom was watching this. And in this case, it's a puppet thing. And, she, and he says, and she, she finally, after watching it towards the end, said, It's fake. It's puppets. It's strings, just the way that he delivers that. And so I think you could have had a similar scene with Fantastic Planet instead of uh, the, the puppet space show. It's, it's, <laughs> it's fake. There aren't really blue aliens out there.
0: Man, it is good to keep that in mind. One other thing I got to address is the music in this film. It's composed by a guy named Alan Goragère. That's going to be my attempt at the French pronunciation. Psychedelic is the word I would use to describe it. It's kind of funky. Yeah. It's not quite like the background music in Amazing World of Ghosts. It's a little more ethereal than that. It's definitely a little
1: proggy. It's not as funky, yeah, as I was thinking of the Lorax, the animated one, has like a funk score going in the background. It, it's not that funky. Um, but it it's a pretty good score, pretty interesting score. I, I thought it
0: added to the atmosphere a lot. Yeah, it's this kind of repetitive soundscape a lot of the time that's got like menacing electric guitar riffs. Like I can't really simulate it. You kind of just got to listen to it. It is up on YouTube. It's just like, bong, bong, strumming the guitar with this this funky 70s reverb. Uh, but then occasionally there is this melody that repeats. It's like a little light motif, And one bit of it is like, It's like this five or six note thing and one time that it comes up is there are these crystals that grow like a fungus and they grow really fast and they like grow up over stuff and Ter is walking around out in the front yard and suddenly the crystals are growing up over him and he's rooted to the ground and he's like panicking
1: it's a moment that in another movie would be played for horror but here is just kind of detachedly observed
0: right because for the drogs these are commonplace and the drogs know what to do because tifa walks up and she whistles that melody she goes i'm not hitting the right notes but it's something like a progression like that and that causes the crystals to shatter It's, again, just this whole set of rules that the aliens know, but the humans don't because it's very unearthly. Right. Those are my thoughts on Fantastic Planet, Dan. And here in episode 99, I'm glad I got to bring it to your consideration. Yeah, after you mentioned it in the
1: very first episode.
0: That's right. So are we ready to say, is it good? I'm ready. Okay, Dan, you're our guest. So you make the first determination. Is it good is our
1: signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating toward a good, an eight out of eight. So I will answer is Fantastic Planet good. This movie, to some extent, is kind of unrateable in that it's like so different from anything else to place it in a linear continuum of what movies are feels almost like a disservice to it. It's it's very very weird. I don't know how many times we're going to say that in this hour and a half long episode or however long it ends up being.
0: It's weird. It's weird. <laughs> People are really into weirdness these days. Yes, Mr. Sherman, everything is weird. <laughs> What's that from? That's from the Simpsons. One of the appearances of John Lovitz as his the critic character. Uh, okay. He's yeah. like in a mental facility and you just see him through a door. It stinks. It stinks. Yes, Mr. Sherman, everything stinks. <laughs> <laughs> there is also
1: something we talked about how the animation itself loses some expressivity, which makes it at moments look a little cheap. I would say in general, it kind of the, the movie kind of weaponizes that into its just very surreal tone and atmosphere. But it really does something that you, you're not going to see anywhere else and uh, does it in an evocative way. And with its very sturdy, straightforward story that I was able to follow without an outline, which is not a given when something is so far removed from basic human reality as this is. I, I, was, I think it's something special. I think it's, I think it's worth seeing by anyone, uh, at least anyone who has a stomach for the oddities out there. Although again, as we've said several times, not strictly scary. I'm going to land on a high six very good verging into an exceptionally good just really something special I don't know if I enjoyed myself but I definitely was provoked and had a lot to think about and could definitely see myself seeing this again although I'm not wouldn't say I'm excited to go see it again (laughs) so that's that's Fantastic Planet for me Uh, I think it's very good I think it's something really special Brian what about you is Fantastic Planet good?
0: Well, I'm glad you got something out of it, Dan. And, yeah, again, that we were just able to check it out after this long stretch of me talking about it and never quite finding the right time. I want to just describe another thing that happens in this movie, which is that Tifa's dad, this mayor of the city, he's in, like, kind of the equivalent of what, for Earthlings, would be, like, a smoking parlor. It's kind of like in titanic you know after the meal all the gentlemen go into the the smoke-filled room to discuss the affairs of being titans of the world and so that's where all these influential male drogs go and they sit on this little couch and i don't know what brings this process about but they like trip together and their bodies start merging like these mottled like cow pattern jumpsuits they have on dissolve into little clouds of color. And then the clouds that were the body of one start mixing with the bodies of the others until they're all one big cloud with four blue heads floating inside it. And then Tifa's little pet human runs into the room and Tifa runs in after it. And all of the men are surprised and all of their bodies jerk back to being their individual bodies and they have like these shocked, embarrassed looks on their faces and they make some comment that she's interrupted their chimerical visions. (laughs) And this is exceptionally good. (laughs) I don't know. It's it's just, it's not like any other movie. I'm giving this one seven out of eight and so much of that is just because of it's never going to leave my head. It's just never going to leave my head. I'm glad that it has resonated, I suppose, with other people, uh, because we can kind of share this collective weirdness.
1: Collective bewilderment, yeah.
0: Yeah, did you see this same thing that I just saw? I did, yeah. And I hope that after hearing this episode, if you haven't seen it yet, listeners, at least a few of you will go and check it out. Man, just by chance I assigned it this week... And then I found out that on Thursday of this week, there was a big screen theatrical showing here in Fairfax, Virginia, but I couldn't go. I was bummed. It was my
1: anniversary, so I couldn't make it either. But man, yeah, this would be something special to see on a big screen, especially with an appreciative crowd. You mean this isn't a fitting anniversary film, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) So you see, uh, Katie, the reason we got to go see this on our anniversary is because... There's these blue aliens, and they love each other much like I love you. I don't know how I would have even come at that one. (laughs) When two drogs
0: love each other very much, they go to a statue valley on the moon. (laughs) And that's our show, folks. That is the conclusion of Month, and what lies ahead, only Dan can tell us. So, Dan... I think we've got a meaningful episode number coming up. That's right. Who would have thunk it? We made it to
1: 100 episodes. Uh, I mean, assuming that we record our next one, which we will in about a week. So, Brian, the very first episode we ever recorded was Suspiria, the 1977, I believe it is, classic horror film. And in 2018, that movie was remade. And wouldn't you know, we're about to enter spooky season. So we need to we need to watch a horror movie. What better way to provide some symmetry to our very first episode for our hundredth episode than to watch the Suspiria remake from 2018 directed by Luca Guadagnino. I'm going to need to look up how you pronounce that before next week. I apologize if I got that wrong. A a pretty well-reviewed remake that I don't know, I'm interested to see how they take that, that movie that we first watched now over two years ago and how they turned that into something special in this new age. Must have like We started as a podcast, that was one thing, and we've turned it into something new. Not exactly a remake, but an evolution, if you will. So uh, it'll be a normal-ish episode. We'll, we'll construct it like any other The Goods episode. And then wh- what I'd like to do, Brian, is after we have recorded this episode and then maybe after we get all the way through spooky season in in November we can do our spectacular and then if we want to do anything else special anything else 100 related we'll do that sometime in November so I think I think this should be an interesting one Suspiria 2018 I'm excited
0: thanks for sharing the journey sure we'll have lots of sentimental things to say in that 100 episode coverage and anything special we might do Hope you'll join us again listeners and I hope your day is fantastic. <laughs> Bye.